0: Chapter Fourteen of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Crake. Chapter Fourteen. What is the matter with the child to day? said Captain Rothsay to his wife, with whom, oh rare circumstance, he was sitting tete a tete. But this, and a few other alterations for the better, had taken place in consequence of his longer stay at home than usual, during which an unseen influence had been busily at work. Poor Olive! Was it not well for her that, to temper the first shock of her bitter destiny, there should arise, in the dreary blank of the future, duties so holy that they stood almost in the place of joys? "'How dull the girl seems!' again observed Captain Rothsay, looking after his daughter, with a tenderness of which he afterwards appeared rather ashamed. "'Dull is she,' said the mother. "'Oh, very likely, poor child. She is grieving to lose her chief friend and companion, Miss Derwent.' News came to her this morning that Sarah is about to be married. Oh, indeed! And Captain Rothsay made an attempt at departure. He hated gossiping, even of the most harmless kind. But his wife, pleased that he condescended to talk to her at all, tried to amuse him in her own easy way. Poor Sarah! I am glad that she is going to have a home of her own, though she is young enough to marry. But I believe it was a very sudden affair, and the gentleman fell so desperately in love with her." "'More fool he!' muttered Captain Rothsay. "'Nay, he is not a fool at all. He is a very sensible, clever man, and a clergyman too—Miss Derwent said so in her brief note to Olive. But she did not mention where he lived. Little indeed she told but that his name was Gwynne. Captain Rothsay turned round quickly. "'And Sarah speaks of his mother being a stiff old Scotswoman. Ah, you are listening now, my dear. Let me see. I think Miss Derwent mentions her maiden name. The silly girl makes quite a boast of her lover's ancient family on the maternal side. "'There is no silliness in that, I hope, Mrs. Rothsay.' "'Certainly not. Was I not always proud of yours?' said the wife, with a meekness not newly learnt. She hunted in her reticule for Sarah's letter, and read, "'Ah, here is the name—Alison Balfour. Do you know it?' "'I did once, when I was a boy. Stay, do not go away in that hasty manner. Pray talk to me a little more, Angus. It is so dull to be confined to this sick-room. Tell me of this Alice in Balfour. You know I should like to hear about your friends. Should you? That is something new. If it had been always so. If you had indeed made my interests yours, Sibylla. There was a touch of regret and old tenderness in his voice. She thought he was kind on account of her illness, and thanked him warmly. But the thanks sent him back to his usual cold self he did not like to have his weakness noticed. Mrs. Rothsay understood neither one state of feeling nor the other, so she said, cheerfully, "'Come, now for the story of Alison Balfour.' "'There is no story to tell. She was merely a young companion of my Aunt Flora. I knew her for some years—in fact, until she married Mr. Gwynne. She was a noble woman.' "'Really, Angus, I shall grow jealous,' said Mrs. Rothsay, half in jest, half in earnest. "'She must have been an old love of yours.' her husband frowned. Folly, Sibylla! She was a woman and I a schoolboy. And yet the words galled him, for they were not far off the truth. True, Alison was old enough to have been his mother, but many a precocious lad of sixteen conceives a similar romantic passion, and Angus Rothsay had really been very much in love, as he thought, with Alison Balfour. Even when he quitted the room and walked out into the road his thoughts went backward many years picturing the old dull mansion whose only brightness had come with her presence. He remembered how he used to walk by her side in lonely mountain rambles, he a young boy and she a grown woman, and how proud he was when she stooped her tall stature to lean upon his arm. Once she kissed him, and he lay awake all night and many a night after, dreaming of the remembered bliss. And as he grew a youth, what delicious sweetness in these continued dreams! What pride to think himself in love!— and with such a woman? Folly it was, hopeless folly, for she had been long betrothed to one she loved. But that was not Owen Gwynne. Alas! Alison, like many another proud, passionate woman, had married in sudden anger, thereby wrecking her whole life. When she did so, Angus Rothsay lost his boyish dream. He had already begun to find out that it was only a dream though his first fancy's idol never ceased to be to him a memory full of all that was noble and beautiful in womanhood. For many years this enchanted portion of Captain Rothsay's past life had rarely crossed his mind, but when it did it was always with a half-unconscious thought, that he himself might have been a better and a happier man had his own beautiful Sibylla been more like Alice in Balfour. This chance news of her awakened memories connected with other scenes and characters, which had gradually melted away from Angus Rothsay's life, or been enveloped in the mist of selfishness and worldliness which had gathered over it and over him. He thought of the old uncle, Sir Andrew Rothsay, whose pride he had been, of the sweet Aunt Flora, whose pale beauty had bent over his cradle with a love almost like a mother's, save that it was so very, very sad. One had died estranged, the other, he would not let many weeks pass before he sought out Miss Flora Rothsay, that he was determined on, and to do so the best plan would be first to go and see Alison, Mrs. Gwynne. Captain Rothsay always kept his intentions to himself, and transacted his matters alone. Therefore, without the aid of wife or daughter, he soon discovered in what region lay Mr. Gwynne's curacy, and determined to hasten his customary journey to London that he might visit the place on his way. The night before his departure came. It was really a melancholy evening, for he had stayed at home so long and been most of the time what his wife called so good that she quite regretted his going, the more so as he was about to travel by the awful railway, then newly established, which, in the opinion of poor Mrs. Rothsay, with her delicate nerves and easily roused terrors, entailed on him the certainty of being killed. She pleaded so much and so anxiously, even to the last, that when, in order to start at daybreak, he bade good-bye to her and Olive overnight, Captain Rothsay was softened even to tenderness. "'Do you really care so much about me, Sibylla?' said he, half mournfully. She did not spring to his arms like the young wife at Stirling, but she kissed his hand affectionately and called him Angus. "'Olive,' said the father, when, having embraced his wife, he now turned to his daughter. "'Olive, my child, take care of your mother. I shall be at home soon and we shall be very happy again, all three. As they ascended the staircase they saw him watching them from below, Olive so content even though her father was going away. She kissed her hand to him with a blithe gesture and then saw him go in and close the door. When the house sank into quietness a curious feeling oppressed Captain Rothsay. It seemed to take rise in his wife's infectious fears. "'Women are always silly,' he argued to himself. Why should I dread any danger? The railway is as safe as a coach. And yet that affair of poor Huskisson—pooh! what a fool I am!" But even while he mocked it, the vague presentiment appeared to take form in his mind. And sitting, the only person awake in the slumbering house, where no sound broke the stillness except the falling of a few cinders, and the occasional noise of a mouse behind the wainscot, somewhat of the superstitions of his northern youth came over him. His countenance became grave, and he sank into deep thought. It is a trite saying that every man has that in his heart which, if known, would make all his fellow creatures hate him. Was it this evil spirit which now struggled in Captain Rothsay's breast, and darkened his face with storms of passion, remorse, or woe? He gave no utterance to them in words. If any secret there were, he would not trust it even to the air. But at times his mute lips writhed, his cheeks burned and grew ghastly. Sometimes, too, he wore a cowed and humble look, as on the night when his daughter had stood like a pure angel to save him from the abyss on the brink of which he trod. She had saved him, apparently. That night's shame had never occurred again. Slowly his habits were changing, and his tastes becoming homelike. But still his lonely hours betokened some secret hidden in his soul, a secret which, if known, might have accounted for his having plunged into uproarious excitement or drunken oblivion. At length, as by a violent effort, Angus Rothsay sat down and began to write. He wrote for several hours, though frequently his task was interrupted by long reveries and by fits of vehement emotion. When he had finished, he carefully sealed up what he had written and placed it in a secret drawer of his desk. Then he threw himself on a sofa, to sleep, during the brief time that intervened before daybreak. In the gray of the morning, when he stood dispatching a hasty breakfast, he was startled by a light touch on his arm. "'Little Olive, why, I thought you were fast asleep.' "'I could not sleep when Papa was going away, so I rose and dressed. You will not be angry.' "'Angry? No.' He stooped down and kissed her, more affectionately even than was his wont, But he was hasty and fidgety, as most men are when starting on a journey." They were both too busy for more words until the few minutes during which he sat down to wait for the carriage. Then he took his daughter on his knee—an act of fatherly tenderness rather rare with him. "'I wish you were not going, or that I were going with you, papa,' Olive whispered, nestling to him in a sweet childish way, though she was almost a woman now. "'How tired you look! You have not been in bed all night.' "'No, I had writing to do.' As he spoke his countenance darkened. "'Olive,' he said looking at her with sorrowful, questioning eyes. "'Well, dear papa?' "'Nothing, nothing. Is the carriage ready?' "'Not yet. You will have time just for one little thing. Twill only take a minute,' said Olive persuasively. "'What is it, little one?' "'Mama is asleep. She was tired and ill. But if you would run upstairs and kiss her once again before you go it would make her so much happier. I know it would.' "'Poor Sibylla!' he muttered, remorsefully, and quitted the room slowly not meeting his daughter's eyes, but when he came back he took her in his arms very tenderly. Olive, my child in whom I trust, always remember I did love you, you and your mother. These were the last words she heard him utter ere he went away. End of chapter 14